0: Welcome to Survivor Sanctuary. I'm Kelly, and I want to thank you for joining me for another episode of the podcast. Hey, have you interacted with other listeners from Survivor Sanctuary recently? Well, you can do that by joining us on our Facebook group. We have a Facebook group that is private, so no trolls allowed. Nobody's going to harass you. Just awesome support from people who understand what you're going through. You can find us at Survivor Sanctuary Podcast. Just do a search, and then it's going to ask you a multiple choice question regarding what this podcast is all about promise you can answer it but you have to answer it in order for me to add you to the group just to make sure everybody that's there is a survivor of sexual abuse within the church and is' going to be supportive of other folks and if you're an advocate for survivors you are welcome to join us as well and hey something else that you can do is check out our website survivorsanctuary.com and there you can read some blog posts you can listen to the podcast there and and learn more about me and about Survivor Sanctuary. And lastly, before we jump into today's episode, I wanna let you know that you can be a supporter of Survivor Sanctuary. There are some costs that I have to cover each month and a couple of times a year for different things I do for the podcast and for hosting the website as well. And you can donate by visiting anchor.fm forward slash Survivor Sanctuary. There's a button that says you can support the podcast. It starts at like 99 cents a month. So for the cost of what can you even get for For 99 cents anymore, right? But you can support this podcast and help me to continue to be able to bring great content to survivors of sexual abuse within the church. Well, today on the podcast, I am so excited to welcome Justin Woodbury of Sheltered But Not Protected. And uh, you can actually find his blog and more about Justin at shelteredbutnotprotected.com and uh, Facebook page of the same name. Uh, Justin, welcome to Survivor Sanctuary. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Kelly. I'm glad to be here.
0: Awesome. Well, I have been following your your page on Facebook, actually. I've read through your blog also. You are an advocate for those abused uh, within the church, and so I've been following you for a while, and I was like, I got to get Justin on the podcast because you always have great things to say, and it just seems like... I mean, this is a survivor community and mm-hmm. so much of what we talk about on the podcast and what a lot of the listeners, you know, are going through on a regular basis is just pretty much the exact stuff that you're, you know, talking about on your page and in your blog. And I always just find myself being like, exactly, <laughs> like, yes, that's exactly yep. right. <laughs> and so I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit and, and have you share Uh, Your story with our listeners on Survivor Sanctuary. Let's start with kind of like your relationship with the church. Did you, like so many of us, grow up within the church?
1: I did. It it was all I can remember from the time I was a little kid, brought up in the nursery, uh, attended church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday evening. Uh, In order to be involved in any part of the church at all, you had to go on Thursday evening visitation, which was an hour of door knocking and Um, trying to get people to come to the church. And then we had Sunday or Saturday morning prayer meeting and Saturday evening prayer meeting that I was at often as well. So yeah, quite a bit until I turned 30.
0: Wow. That's a lot. Um, I used to, I'm always like Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, or you weren't a Christian, but you had Thursdays too. And then, and (laughs) I used to feel so guilty about this when I was growing up in church and it made me feel like, okay, you don't really love Jesus because you don't want to like knock on anybody's door and tell them (laughs) to come to your church or talk to them about the Lord. Like I struggled with that so much because it was humiliating and I was so shy and like, I had like social anxiety that I just didn't realize it when I was younger. (laughs) So I was like, I must just not love Jesus because I do not want to be doing this. But my goodness, every Thursday, that that's a lot. Like, um, I feel like I'm going to stop complaining about my experience <laughs> now that well, I've heard
1: that. And I actually, you know, get really good at it. Um, I was homeschooled. And so part of my speech in high school was going out an hour a week, not even including that Thursday evening. It was just an hour during the week with my pastor who taught me this 45 minute to an hour sales presentation of the gospel, really. And um, I learned it and I got really, really good at it. Um, And I'm not even saying that I'm proud of that. I just, I did. I got very good at getting people to listen to me for at least an hour, but I hated it too. It it gave me anxiety as well, but I did get, I, I learned how to knock doors.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's pretty good. Like, you probably were just super prepped for a career in sales after that. Like,
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> I was always terrible at it, and I suck at sales too. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> so was it a particular denomination, the church that you went to? I know that, like, see, like a lot of like, just in reading some of your story, like a lot of super legalism. Yes. Um. So I was wondering about like, it was it a specific denomination?
1: Yeah, it was Independent Fundamental Baptist.
0: Okay. So you were in an IFP church growing up. Yes. Okay, great. I mean, I was going to say awesome, but as we know, it's not super awesome for so many people. I grew up a lot of my childhood in the IFB as well. So yeah, very familiar. Um, However, I feel like, were you in the same church um, the whole time you were growing up? Like the same pastor, leaders, things like that?
1: Same exact church. So interestingly enough, I I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, went to the same exact church the entire time I grew up. When I turned 18 and graduated from college, I went to our pastor's brother-in-law's college in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin, Baptist College of Ministry. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but I don't uh, think so. And then, yeah, it's a very, very small college. And then when I graduated, I actually went back as the music director at that church that I grew up in until I was 30. Um, oh, wow. So 30 years in the exact same church, under the exact same dictating
0: pastor. Wow, that's kind of crazy. I almost feel like in in my like upbringing because my parents were missionaries and my dad like had this love of like traveling. I I realized a little later in life that he might have had like some ADHD or maybe bipolar disorder going on because he constantly needed that like just swoop, I need a big change all of a sudden. And so I think that saved me from being stuck in like one IFB church uh, for my entire childhood because I feel like you get a little bit more of like the indoctrination almost when you're just under one pastor
1: agreed completely okay yeah Yeah.
0: no it just so part of me is like okay thank you dad for not being able to sit still in one place for more than a year or two you know because we moved a lot and I think that that kind of kind of put a little bit of a I don't know like a wrinkle in in some of the indoctrination But I've noticed in some of your writing, like on your blog specifically, that you you believe maybe that the leaders in your church were sincere at first. But what was it that began to happen?
1: You know, yeah, I do believe they were sincere at first. Uh, My pastor was what they call a first-generation Christian. So he didn't grow up in a Christian home, but he became a Christian in his early 20s. And he felt the call to preach. And so he started a church. And in the very beginning, I, I can't really pinpoint anything that was going on that was wrong. People were happy to come to church. They were happy to uh, serve God. They were happy to be part of a community and to uh, part of an outreach. And uh, my parents actually are first-generation Christians well as well. And my pastor reached out to them, and they became Christians because of his influence and stuff. And so at the very beginning, early years— It was just people excited about serving God, I guess you would call it. You know, I think really what happened is as our church started to grow and we started to get some recognition in the other, and when I say recognition, I mean small circles in the IFB, you know that, but in the other IFB churches and circles, we started to get a little bit of recognition. My pastor married a girl from the Van Gelderen family, uh, which is a pretty big family in the IFB, in our circles, at least. They're a pretty well-known family. And so then he started getting uh, invited to go to different conferences and preach. And he, he start, they started getting really proud and started getting holier than thou. And you could just see a progression after he really after he got married to the Van Gelderen girl, that there was just this progression of pride and super holier-than-thou attitudes and and judgmental uh, spirits and stuff like that. So the best I can tell, that's kind of what happened. Plus, you know, I really believe that when children are little, I've even seen this with my own children, that the easiest thing to do is demand for them to obey you and scare them into obedience and lie to them by saying, well, the Bible doesn't The Bible commands us not to, no no reference to alcohol in the Bible, it's all grape juice. All all references to the Bible are grape juice, except the bad (laughs) references, that's alcohol. Yes, Um, all of them except those. Oh, yeah. And, you know, women have to be modest because the Bible commands that women can't wear pants. And so all these little commands in the Bible that we were taught growing up when we were little, um, it was easy to obey. You were scared to not obey. But as we got older and got to the teenage years and started questioning things, that's when it became a problem. And that's really when our pastor started cracking the whip on the parents of teens because they were allowed to start watching movies or doing different things that teens are allowed to do. And that's when it really started to get extremely cultish.
0: Right. And it just, it almost seems like that's just the way that you control people and kind of keep them just keep them under control, I guess, is it's usually, it's so much easier with fear. I love that you said that about kids. Cause I haven't thought of it that way before, but it's so true. Like it's so much easier than trying to let them be little people who like make mistakes and, you know, yes. working yes. through problems and teaching, giving them like tools and skills to get through them. It's so much easier to just be like, shut up and do what I say, you know, and, right. but you have to make them scared. And I don't know if this was an experience of yours, but just even as an adult like my view of god was so warped after coming out of the ifb and not even just the ifb because i spent time in other denominations you know for years as well my dad liked to denomination hop also so like okay i spent so much time and it was just like my view of god was of just somebody i was constantly disappointing who was always mad at me and who I always had to be like, okay, I know I should have prayed more today. Um, sorry. Yes. I know you hate me, but please, you know, it's like, it, and it's, that's your idea of God and that's how you look at him after kind of growing up in that environment where every single thing is controlled. And you mentioned movies and heaven forbid anybody watch a movie much less, even worse. If you go to a theater, Like
1: that's That's right. That's right.
0: See, absolutely. The first time I went to a theater, I literally expected people to be doing drugs and having sex in the seats because that's how much it was like frowned upon when I was a kid. And when I went there and I'm like, oh, hi, you just sit in chairs and eat popcorn and watch this movie. Like, it was so weird to me.
1: Well, yeah, I can remember when Honey, I Shrunk the Kids came out. I was a kid. And I begged my parents to let me watch it. And my mom says, no, you can't because there's a really bad sex scene on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And so... (laughs) I remember, I'm not. This is like no joke. I got out of college, and <laughs> as soon as I was out of college, my parents went on a trip. And the first movie I got was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and I watched it just wondering, what have I missed? And, You know, nothing, right? There's where's was that like,
0: steamy scene? Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> I was I was looking for it pretty hard, but it never <laughs> never came up. So it, yeah, I mean, movies, the, any any of that kind of stuff. We were actually one of the few families in the church that owned a TV. Most of them. Didn't even own a TV, but we did, so. Oh, wow. But we weren't allowed to watch it, so. No, figured. of course not. <laughs>
0: Unless your parents are gone, and then, like, my, my sister and I used to try to watch, like, um, Beverly Hills 90210, like, back in the 90s, that was the thing. <laughs> if we got, like, to pretend we were sick and skip uh, church on a Wednesday evening, That was always the show that came on the TV. My sister more because she was like, I'm watching this. And I was always scared of getting in trouble. But yeah, my parents would like come home and feel to see if the TV was hot to know if we'd been watching Uh, (laughs) her. Hardcore IFB parents, you know. Yes. Yes. So unfortunately, like so many people in the IFB church, um, you experienced sexual abuse within the church. Can you share uh, some of your story with us?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, uh, as a junior in high school, a minor still, uh, I, um, just so I can set the context for this because, you know, there's, there's movies out that make light of, uh, young teenage guys having affairs with older women and stuff. And in fact, I remember some of my friends finding out about it after the fact and slapping me on the back and being like, man, good for you. And, Mm. um, but so to set the context for it, because it wasn't like that at all. It, it, the whole thing began when I was 13, actually. Uh, this this woman admitted later on, uh, she began grooming me at 13. Uh, but as a 17-year-old who had never held a girl's hand, never dated, never anything like that, never watched a movie with anything, um, I was I was ripe for the picking when it came to curiosity and just sheer ignorance when it came to relationships or anything. So my mom's best friend... At the time, she was in her mid-30s, married, had four children. Uh, she was a choir member. She was an orchestra member. She worked in the nursery. She taught Sunday school. She was one of the first people who would rush to the altar almost every Sunday in tears, begging for God to send revival in her heart or whatever it was. Uh, she wore long dresses So considered a godly spiritual woman in our church, someone who was also a a close family friend, like I said, my mom's best friend. So that's kind of like the the context of of what I'm about to say. Um, Like I said, I was homeschooled. One day, my mom gave me some schoolwork and she went out um, shopping and her friend, her name's Carolyn Mathiah, Carolyn called and asked for my mom. When she found out my mom wasn't home, she's like, okay, by the way, I had a dream about you. And I was like, really? What was it about? She's like, oh, I can't tell you. And, mm-hmm. but it, she's like, but it was really. Mm. And so I, you know, I got to a place where I was actually begging her, Kelly, to tell me what the dream was about. Cause I was like, what, is, what, what, what's going on? Right. And so she finally told me, and the dream was basically her and I had gotten married and had wild, passionate sex, and that it was the best sex she had ever had. This was her dream. Wow. And so. That conversation turned into subsequent conversations, and they just built upon each other. And that's when she started to admit. She's like, you know, when you started going through puberty and started getting, you know, peach fuzz is when I started to get really hot for you. And and so it was like thirteen, and she admitted that she had groomed me throughout the years, um, and that she was extremely attracted to me, and all. You know, saying all the right things that a 17-year-old curious, ignorant teen would, would love to hear and um, would, would want to hear more of. And so, anyways, over the next three months, um, it blossomed into a, um, a pretty full sexual um, relationship with this woman. And, you know, it's interesting because people think that predators that a lot of predatory behavior takes place at the mall or in a car or, or whatever. Most of the stuff that took place, my parents were right in the other room
0: Um,
1: and they trusted her. And so did I actually. And so things, things took place. Um, I won't go into all the detail about it, but you know, I experienced, I I say this in my book, I experienced a lot of firsts with her, um, that I still am triggered by today. And it was it was a, just a twisted, bizarre sexual relationship. And I'll I'll give you a couple of examples. The first time I had ever kissed a woman was was Carolyn, and she I just remember that her tongue going down my throat and being like, oh, just being so disgusted because I didn't know what it was, and it wasn't it wasn't at all what I had imagined it would be. When I was shared the first kiss with my wife on the altar, right? That's what we were taught, right? And uh, and then it turned into kissing with our eyes open and staring at each other and stuff, which was just, I Googled it a couple of years ago and that was like indication of psychotic behavior. Like, and she was psycho. Um, right. but it was, it was weird, just weird stuff like that. Um, and it was, it, it got to the point where it crossed a line into where I started to get scared for not, not for my life, but just scared, Uh, And the reason why is because at one point, and of course our church didn't believe in divorce and remarriage, and so she had this fantasy from her dream that her and I were going to one day be married, and I was going to raise her children with her, and her kids were going to call me daddy and stuff like that, and that was a little weird for me. Um, But when it got super bizarre and when it kind of scared me into like trying to run the other way is when... She started conspiring with me to kill her husband because um, because of the divorce and remarriage thing. So she started asking me if I knew of any ways to conspicuously, like to secretly kill somebody without anyone knowing, talking about her husband. And you know, I was a curious teen. Um, I had no intentions on marrying this woman. I certainly wasn't in love with her, but there's this infatuation and really just psychotic behavior on her end um, for it. So anyways, it it lasted about three to four months. And then when that whole thing about me killing your husband happened, I kind of just ran away a little bit from it. And then a couple months later, it lasted again for another month or so. You know, it it lasted about a summer, um, all in all, um, before I turned 18.
0: Wow, that's so much. And like, one thing i want to say just like kind of as an aside is that i hate so much the kind of the caveats that you feel the need to or maybe you just do it because you know like what is going to go through some people's minds i hate (laughs) that men specifically have to do that when they're talking about sexual abuse especially if they were abused by a woman it's like you have to make sure you say all the right things so that people understand that this wasn't some, yay, you know, I get to do sexual things and I should just be grateful for it, you know, instead of acting like it's a big deal. Like I hate that for like for you and for men in general, because I've noticed that it's almost like a thing like where you to protect yourself, you kind of have to say those things and that sucks so bad. Yeah, Um, And I would love to see society change to the point where they're not, so dumb that they can't understand Mm -hmm. the difference between someone having a sexual relationship with a peer and being groomed and sexually abused by someone that they would never choose in 500 million years. And unfortunately, so often victims of abuse are left feeling like it was their idea or that they were complicit because, oh, I willingly participated. And I will say that I don't think it matters what age you are when it happens or who abused you, male or female or someone of the same sex or the opposite sex. I think that a lot of sexual abuse survivors feel that same way. I was six when I was abused. Mm. And up until I was in my thirties, I literally thought that it was my idea. You know, Mm. I was six. It's like, you just, that's like, I think that that's just something that's so at play with like the shame that comes with being sexually abused so I just kind of I just wanted to interject that because you know I hear you saying that stuff and it's it's because you know like kind of the mindset that some really annoying people have sometimes I argue with people like that on you know Facebook when like news stories come out about teachers sexually abusing their students and then men just say the dumbest things and I'm just like why like why can we not change this mindset but
1: You're Um, absolutely right. It's it's preconditioned in me to make those, you know, do the explain explain myself um, because of so many people that have read my story um, that have come at me and been like, "Come on, man! Like seriously?" And it's all it's guys. It's not. It's never women. It's all always men. But it, uh, yeah, it's no joke.
0: (laughs) And I I almost feel like it makes it so much harder to for men to recognize abuse maybe. Um, and it's, it's always hard when you're being manipulated by a predator (laughs) like this. There's no instance where it's easy to be like, Oh, Hey, this person's a predator and I know exactly what to think and what to do. But I think it makes it a little bit harder when society has just like conditioned everyone to think that men should just be grateful for any sexual experience they have. Yes. So,
1: and then um, I was conditioned from the time I was a, a minor seventeen to think that it was my fault or that I participated in it. Because so what what happened was the you know the thing with me killing your husband happened, and then we we're uh, another bizarre situation happened th- that I was creeped out. So I the best I could put a stop to it, and she told me if you ever ever breathe a word of this to anybody, I will. I will deny it. And I'll say it was your fault. And that you came on to me and nobody will believe you because you're a rebellious teen and I'm a an established woman. So she gave me all the threats. And wow. So I didn't say a word um, for about a year. And then one day I was so worked up about it. Um, I actually poured my heart out to my dad and uh, told him about it. But I made him swear not to tell anybody because I didn't want to get in trouble, of course. Right. And so I went to college and my freshman year at college, my dad called me up and he's like, Justin, you've gotta say something to anybody. I've kept my word. I haven't said anything, which I think my dad regrets, but he was trying to he was trying to respect the fact that I poured my heart out to him. Right. Uh, but he's like, You've gotta say something to somebody. So I went to my pastor and I told him, I was like, look, you've got to keep an eye out on on this woman. And, oh, let me back up. The reason my dad thought I needed to say something is because he saw her praying on other young men. Uh. And he, he was like, you've got to say something. And so I did. I went to my pastor, said, you've got to watch out for Carolyn Mathiah. Uh, she's a predator. And he's like, well, how do you know? And I'm like, well, she she, I, she was flirting with me in the past. And he's like, well, did she ever, um, did she ever talk inappropriately to you? And I said, yes. And he's like, well, did she ever touch you? And... I said, yes. And he's like above the belt or below the belt. And I was like, below the belt. And he's like in the pants or outside of the pants. And he just, he went through and just got the most, I felt like he was almost living vicariously through me or getting off on asking me these questions. Like he wanted to know way, way more detail than I was comfortable sharing. But I felt that I had to tell him now that he was telling me this stuff. So, or asking me these questions. So I told him all of the details until he started asking me about oral sex and stuff. And I'm like, you know what? He doesn't need to know anymore. And so I started lying after that and was like, nope, that never happened. Nope. that never happened. Right. Um, because I was like, pervert, man. Like you're right. asking too much. Like it just was so, I was so uncomfortable. I, I re- still remember where I was, the restaurant we were at. Um, and I was shaking in my seat, telling him about it. And then I remember him telling me this. He said, Justin, you have to submit yourself under my authority and God will protect you and bless you. Even if I'm wrong, even if I tell you to do the wrong thing, God will bless you for obeying me. So you have to, you have to obey me basically, or else this is not going to go well for you. And so of course I did. And what that meant was I was kicked out of the choir because I was home for the summer and I was supposed to be I was on the music, in the music program. So I was supposed to be in the choir and stuff, but I was kicked out of the choir. I couldn't teach Sunday school. She was also kicked out of the choir. Couldn't teach Sunday school. And they, she was confronted about it. She denied it like she promised she would. And then he went back to her again and said, if you don't tell the truth, I'm going to make you meet with all the men in the, uh, on the deacon board and tell them what you're telling me. And so finally she broke down and admitted the whole thing. And then what happened was she was made to write a letter of apology to my parents for what she did to me. I was made to write a letter of an apology to her husband for oh. what I did to her, um, and the letter h- was apologizing to him for stealing his wife and oh for goodness. Ca- causing her to commit adultery uh, and stuff like that. And the thing is, Kelly, I believed it with all my heart. I was like, I wasn't the Joseph. I didn't run, and so I, I honestly believed it for years until mm-hmm. probably until I, in my thirties when I started. I had my own kid, and looked down, and was like, that's bullshit. Like I did not. I that, I did not have a part in that, but until until I had my own kid, I, I just was like, yeah, I, I you know I was a Joseph. I didn't run. so I actually was made to apologize to to her husband, and then they wanted to leave the church. Their family wanted to leave the church, and my pastor forbid it. Um, and they left anyways. Uh, they went off to another church. It was never reported to that church uh, as far as I know, that church still didn't know or doesn't know what had happened with that she was a predator. And then I I got counseling up to the point they wanted to make sure I was truly broken and sorry for my sin. There is no counseling for like victim counseling or anything like that. And then, of course, the police were never uh, notified because between the conspiracy to murder and the fact that she sexually abused me, she could possibly still be in jail. um, Oh, yeah for the combination of that, but it was just hush hush. It was never, you know, people were brought before the church for being caught for going to the movie theaters or, um, stuff like that. But like a scandal like this was like, hush hush put underneath the um, carpet and we, people just moved on. I was never given counseling, which really, really messed with my mind years later.
0: That's insane. So they essentially did not treat you as though you were a victim at all.
1: None whatsoever. They they said you have at least equal part to blame for this, and and they 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 gave it like a 49 51 percent with fifty one percent on her because she was older, but it was it was very very, um, and some people blamed me more than that, um, but you know the the general consensus among the the deacon board was it was pretty equal, and we'll lean a little bit towards Carolyn because Justin was the one that came forward and confessed it in the first place, and he seems the most sorry, but um, no, it it was there was zero chance that they were going to let me feel like a victim or whatever. I, I, I made a choice. And, and again, I wasn't a Joseph. That was did,
0: did they use those words with you?
1: A hundred percent
0: oh because when you said that the first time i'm like hold on did your own mind come up with that or were these people telling you you weren't a joseph
1: no that's what they told me
0: i mean they've never heard of clearly like you know the fight flight freeze (laughs) yeah you know they they clearly don't know how trauma works even a little bit and that's that's horrible and unfortunately it seems to be why most people can't come forward or when they do come forward, that's that's how they're treated in a lot of mm-hmm. IFB churches and other denominations as well. Um, not to just only pick on the IFB, but it's bad. And I think that when you make such a big stink about holiness and living these holy lives, like pretty much trying to be sinless. I mean, they don't say that's what it is, but if you sin, Oh no, you know, something's going to happen. I think that that just makes it impossible for people to be able to see where, sure. like, oh, maybe I didn't mess yes. up here. Or, oh, maybe God has more grace. And not speaking of any, anything abuse related, but just like in the normal stuff in life sure. that people go sure. through. It's kind of like when it's when the foundation is built on something that's flawed, it can't ever be right until it's torn down and the foundation is completely rebuilt. Um, and it seems like in the IFB church, like a lot of, a lot of it is just built on this striving to be holy like Christ. And there was always to me, like, yes, grace, you know, we're saved by grace through faith, Mm -hmm. of course, but there was always a, but after that, like, Yes. And if you, if you try to have a conversation like this with like IFB pastors or anyone who's from like a super strict, super legalistic denomination, it's the same thing. Like I'll just, it almost makes me laugh. Like it's not funny, but it makes me almost laugh at the fact that they cannot talk about grace without putting a big, butt afterwards, like, yes, but you know, you also have to live this sinless, wonderful lifestyle where you don't dance or drink or make out with boys or do whatever. But I can't like my blood pressure went up so high when you were telling me that first of all, that creepy pastor was asking you to describe explicit details of of what happened. That's not to me, I mean I mean, I know that when it comes to like if people want to figure out like, okay, what was the nature of this abuse? Like, what are we talking here saying flirtatious words and never acting on them? Or are we dealing with a predator? So you might need a little bit more detail than just, Oh, one sentence. But that whole thing of like, Oh, I need the explicit details of your abuse spelled out for me. To me, that's just says like, that's, that's creepy.
1: Yes. No, I completely agree. And I'll just say this as a side note, because this is is in my book, because it was just such a... We could talk about this for hours, but as a side note, he built the system uh, with which to just absolutely shame victims, or even people that they considered struggling with sin, but he he built this system where anything went. I mean, I can remember a girl got uh, pregnant in the church, and she had to come before the deacon board and everything. And they asked her if she enjoyed it, uh, enjoyed the sex. and they asked they were asking her like just bizarre, completely inappropriate questions. but you know when when you were under church discipline, you were required to answer anything if you didn't, it was a sign that you weren't truly broken because truly broken people were willing to answer and willing to do anything, literally anything to be restored back into good standing in the church. And so my pastor built that system. Um, for thirty plus years, and then uh, again, you feel free to share this with the the listeners or or bleep this out. But he he actually got caught having an affair with a, a dear lady in our church. But she was handicapped, um, mentally handicapped woman in our church, and he was caught having an affair. And the deacon board took him to task on it, and he was made to sit there and answer the same embarrassing, devastating horrible, intrusive, inappropriate questions that he had set the system up. I mean, he taught them they're the best of the best. Some of those had been deacons for 30 years since the church started. Um, And he was made to answer just bizarre, inappropriate questions. And he didn't like it. He's like, do I really have to answer that? And they're like, absolutely you do.
0: Yeah, all of Um, us had to.
1: Yeah, all of us had to. So anyways, it kind of came full circle on him at some point. But no, he he was, he was out of control with his, with his question line of questioning. And like I said, I really felt like he was somehow getting off on, on some of my answers and, and stuff. So.
0: And I feel like that just that sense that you get, because, you know, I I feel like a lot of us have had similar feelings. Um, I had a therapist once who wanted Mm -hmm. to know specifically, like the nature of any, like, physical contact i had with like boyfriends and stuff that had nothing to do with really my story or anything and i just remember sitting there thinking it's very strange that he wants to know these very explicit details and like how does it help And i asked later i asked like a female therapist if that was normal and she just looked at me like i want to kill this guy you know like yes but i think that you get a sense of that something's off and i think that people who have Dealt with being abused, you know, by a predator, our BS meters are they function very, very well and are like <sighs> creep meters. Um, and so I think for sure, and and then the fact that you said that he was caught, you know, in a sexual relationship with someone who is mentally handicapped, I mean, that's abuse. You know, yes. that's because the power differential is so great. Yes. Um, the fact that he's her pastor makes it predatory, and then the fact that She also was clearly a very vulnerable person mentally, it makes it even more so. So, yeah, like he definitely major creep vibes there. Yes. Well, we are going to stop right there for this episode of Survivor Sanctuary, but Justin has so much more to his story, and he's going to be back on the next episode to tell us more. In the meantime, if you want to connect with Justin on Facebook, his page is Sheltered But Not Protected. You can also find him at shelteredbutnotprotected.com. His blog is there, and you can learn more about his book as well. So join me next time for the next installment of this interview with Justin Woodbury of Sheltered but not protected. I'll see you then. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast.